Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Nick, the CEO at Wrangle, and we discuss cultivating alignment as a leader, the factors that determine a successful proof of concept, and what enterprises can do to better prioritize performance. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. How are you feeling today? You feeling good? It's Friday. I feel pretty good. I, you know, the days sort of blend into each other. So Friday's good, but yeah, Saturday I'll be here again. So are you uh, at, at home? Are you going to the office? What are you up to? I'm at home. That is a, a picture of my office. So the, uh, it just looks better than my other background. I love it, man. I get really excited when I, especially when I get to talk to CEOs that are in the technology space because you know, you get the the entrepreneurial aspect of of growing something and uh, doing difficult things. I'm a big fan of doing difficult things. So, what what is Wrangle? So, Wrangle is a, a modern innovation and development uh, company uh, consultancy, and we're a little unique in that we were born in the sort of the modern customer experience era. So, we're going to be seven years old in about a week. And I started the company in May 2013 uh, when I got really excited about HTML5, uh, mobile, responsive web, like a whole rewriting of of the web. And our first uh, tagline was the web inverted because after you know a decade or, or longer working with companies, helping them move everything to the server you know, and uh, web-based application architecture and thin client, we were going in the exact opposite direction. We're building you know, thick clients were going back to client server because uh, browsers have gotten so popular that they created a much better experience if you built the application to run in the browser. And uh, that was where Wrangle started. And uh, we jumped in right when it started taking off. So we were, as far as I know, the first JavaScript only, uh, you know, web development consultancy in uh, in North America uh, because nobody actually could build full applications with using just JavaScript like six months before from a practical perspective. And uh, from a, a market timing perspective, it was really about the distribution channel. So, you know, JavaScript had been around for a decade, um, you know, mobile was taking off, but everything always had to be supporting older browsers and uh, with uh, HTML5 and Chrome driving a standards compliance level that we've never seen in, in, in the world really from an open source perspective that started creating these open source platforms and, and the ability to uh, start building these new applications. So the, the way I, I sort of uh, described it is that I think around January, February, 2013, the number of devices that were running pretty much HTML5 compliant type um, browsers was over 90%. And once that happened, you no longer had to go through these hoops and build server-side applications. And with mobile and the rewriting of the web, um, that was that was really the start for Wrangle. And we, uh, we got there early and um, we just kept evolving with that and um, bringing in new capabilities. So we started in the era of mobile, responsive, HTML5, and uh, where Agile had become an accepted way of building things, which was also new because um, you know Agile as a, as a practice never really got very far in the services world because of the way contracts were normally done and, and the way companies work. So 
we also started when agile also crossed a, a certain threshold so we've never been anything but agile in our in our history and that's resulted in our, our evolution to this modern digital consultancy that's focused on customer experience um, lean agile practices and uh, the ability to scale digital in a way that is um, just different because um, we don't have any legacy sort of uh, built into our DNA. I really like the brand. I checked out the website. I like the style of the brand. I also like how you guys had the uh, navigation organized about like who we are and like about us, like what we think that the, the, the structure and the substructure was actually very human uh, in its exploration, right? You could tell that there was a lot of intelligence behind how you, how you structured it. Because those are the questions that people are asking. Now, the most popular pages on our site is the about site, about page. Yeah. Yeah, and we tried to build the website to reflect our our purpose and, and our and what we do for our clients, and it's evolved a lot over the years. But um, one of the interesting things about what we do is we partner with our clients in a, in a transparent manner. So when you're working in a in a very accelerated, agile fashion, you're uh, effectively we do continuous delivery all the time, and we're always delivering to the clients, which means that the conversation. And the relationship is, is much more at the point of work being created. So it's not in the deliverables, it's, it's in the interactions around the deliverables. So we start building something for a client and uh, we partner with a continuous delivery model and uh, they know everything that's going on all the time. All of our people are client facing. And as a result, we've got a, a very strong symmetry with what we do and what our clients do and want to do, our, our client uh, value proposition, our brand to our clients is the same to the people that join Wrangle. It, there's a, a, a unique symmetry there, which is one of the reasons we were able to grow fast when we were you know, from a start seven years ago to about 200 people today is that um, symmetry. And we've kept continuously evolved as the industry's evolved and stayed ahead of it so that we've become the scaled digital customer experience consultancy and, and transformation partner for our clients. Are you guys doing a lot of proof of concepts? We are doing, uh, in, in some respects, our, our model is that everything should be something you learn from. So your proof of concept is, is in the continuous delivery model. Um, we do a lot of exploratory work. We do a lot of proof of concepts. We do a lot of MVP work. So we worked with a, one large global medical company where the, the model was POCs, MVPs, and then scaling and market. Um, and one of the reasons for that wasn't just about finding the market and finding the concepts, but for internal organizational alignment. Uh, there's nothing quite like trying to get something done to, get, uh, to find out where the friction is and find out where, where the alignment needs to come. So... I got a question for you. So my background, I've been engineering for 17 years. And one of the conversations that I've had with a couple different people were where they, uh, I guess, discussing the topic of if you're building an MVP or, you know, proof of concept, uh, some people say it's okay to be really lazy uh, with the code and rack up a ton of technical debt. Other people say there's no reason why you shouldn't do best practices from day one. What are your thoughts on this topic? I'd say it's uh, like everything. It depends. It it, it always um, it, it depends on on what the context is. So if you really are proving something out and you, there's a high you know amount of uncertainty, 
then uh, throwaway code can be useful. But well, what we found is as we work in a certain way and, and uh, you, we do high quality code, we, we test our code, um, even in shorter projects that tends to deliver more value because it's forcing you to think better and you're, you're building uh, faster because you can think better about your code and, and you can explore more. So it, it's, I think that line where writing high quality tested code uh, where it used to be, I would say maybe, you know, you're six weeks into a project and you've got three people and you're going to continue to work on it. Um, you want to make sure that you're doing your testing and, and, and the high quality code. I think with everybody being really good at it and uh, the way that it drives thinking and, and evolution of a code base, um, I'd say if you're doing something that you expect may continue on, start with the, the high quality because the, uh, the challenge is if you've incurred too much technical debt, it becomes very, very hard uh, to, to recover from that, particularly early on. One thing we found when we were working with clients early on, so when uh, AngularJS, uh, one of the, the technologies that you know, we kicked off with as a, you know, the world's sort of first you know, AngularJS consultancy, um, one of the first, when people didn't think about quality until they were six weeks in, then they didn't know how to do it anymore. The, the code wasn't really amenable to uh, uh, refactoring it because Quality comes from you know, really clean code, decoupled code, things you can think about it. It's, it's been challenged continuously, which testing does. And um, you get too far in and, and you never recover. So I would say that if you think you're gonna go past two weeks, then uh, I'd say go all in on the quality. How, how do you approach like determine if these proof of concepts, like you build a proof of concept for something, maybe a client, like how do you determine its success? everyone has a different goal when they build something and there's a, a different number of assumptions. So the first thing is to really understand what the proof of concepts for. And often people have a, a high level of um, enthusiasm for an idea, but the idea that they're really enthusiastic about is, is down in the future. And, uh, and it's very hard to get there. So if you're going to build something really, really effective and find a way to market from a, a lean startup product market fit perspective, you have to understand where you're trying to go in the short term because it's like sailing a boat. And if a proof of concept is going to prove something could be sort of done in a, a useful way, that's a user experience outcome. If you're trying to see if it's going to attract a potential client, then you're, you're, you need something that's going to go into market and uh, see if you can actually attract users. Um, so success really depends on the hypothesis and, uh, and, and having people who think about product from a business value perspective and can you know, come up with those that, that sort of incremental iterative value that you're going to deliver and measure against. And if you can knock out, you know, different hypotheses, uh, business ones, as you move through, then your initial POCs lay the foundation for building a, a product MVP. So you've eliminated a lot of the risk and you found enough to prioritize. And then every single, increment should be a, a clarification of something. And that's where a lot of innovation breaks down because there's not the ongoing sort of hunger to learn and, and evolve. It becomes, okay, someone's decided this, um, we're just gonna build it. And it turns into a feature race and there's not that sort of um, evolution. So you're several years into this business. I wanna know like, what's keeping you excited? Why are you getting out of bed in the morning still? 
Yeah, software is an incredibly uh, rewarding uh, but difficult profession. So, you know, in, I've been in, in the field for over 20 years now, and the amount of things that we build that are, are wasted and the, the things that are speculative and the, and the things that, you know, that is a huge human cost. And building better software um, and finding ways of building better software. So we're not always restarting and we're creating things that deliver more value. Uh, the better value we can deliver, the more value we can deliver, the, it's, a, it's a better world we make. So the, the, my passion for software and, and digital you know, building, it comes from that. And there's still so much, uh, so far to go in terms of uh, you know, our industry and our practices, in terms of innovation and you know, transformation and customer experience. And there's so many industries that are, you know, need to evolve into digital centric businesses that, uh, that, you know, for me, the journey is only just starting. That's exciting. What, what are you, what's like, what makes you tick like personal hobbies when you're not doing the company or building the software empire? Uh, what are you, what are you doing? So there, that's a bit of a, uh, uh, an area of, uh, shame, I guess. Um, building a company is really, really hard. So, you know, I did wake up one day and realize I wasn't really uh, talking to my friends. I wasn't, didn't have any hobbies, wasn't doing anything for fun. Um, you know, spent a lot of time with, with my kids, which is great. And, you know, they're getting older now. Um, but yeah, I wasn't really taking care of myself that well. And uh, I've tried to uh, improve that in the last year. So, Still hard because uh, there's a, obviously with you know COVID nineteen there's a, a huge focus on business. But I started teaching myself piano about a year ago as a as a hobby. Nice. And um, you know there's a couple of things that I, I've learned. And yeah, one is having a, a hobby is great because it just spins your brain in a different direction and, and acquiring other skills uh, because it's easy to fall into a trap, especially as a, an entrepreneur um, and you know CEO that. You know, you're constantly trying to have the, the right answers and, um, and you know, you never do. It's always changing. The market's always changing. And so to, to continuously stay learning and not get trapped and becoming too operational. And I think that's a, a personal, um, that's where companies, you know, start to be challenged because they become all about the operating and the risk management and the efficiencies. And uh, you can become the same as a person and then you burn out. You know, you, uh, you, you don't find joy in the work. And so I found that by uh, maintaining more discipline, I can maintain my, uh, my enthusiasm. Uh, and uh, it doesn't go away because if you actually pay attention and you, you learn and you read and you, you know, especially the, the really, the, the brilliant stuff that's uh, coming out, it just never stops. There's always something amazing to do next and, and try to build and innovate just when you get stuck in your own head that uh, it seems like it's, it's getting dusty. Do you ever follow Jocko or David Goggins? I read, uh, read uh, all of those books. Um, I, I'm not following the podcast, but uh, yeah, extreme leadership, uh, dichotomy of leadership, um, both uh, incredible books. Uh, particularly, I, I love the dichotomy of leadership because is that Goggins? No, that's uh, that's Jocko uh, Wilnick. Well, oh, I didn't see. I only read his ownership one. There's like extreme ownership one. I didn't know he had a second one. 
Well, the second book was a bit of a mea culpa because people got carried away with extreme ownership and <laughs> a lot of people interpret it as sort of micromanagement. And, and that's not what it is. You own the outcome and you're there to create, you know, the team and the systems that the outcome happens, but you're not creating the outcome. You're, you're, you're creating the environment. Um, and, uh, and so they wrote the dichotomy of leadership because everything is on a spectrum and uh, they talk about, you know, sometimes you should micromanage. Um, sometimes you should let people run. And, you know, you see this a lot, especially with new managers. It's like, I like to empower my people. And it's like, well, you just let them fuck up all the time. Excuse my language. But, you know, they don't know how to do the job yet. So let's see a little micromanagement until you've given them the knowledge to do the job. Um, Andy Grove caught, captured that really well in uh, high output management where he talked about task relevant maturity. You can take someone who's brilliant in one job. That doesn't mean they're brilliant in the other. They're suddenly junior again. And uh, you have to evolve everybody in, in a new role, particularly in a, uh, you know, in an organization that's scaling. So, but uh, yeah. And I, I read uh, David Goggins book uh, a couple of months ago. So I didn't know he had a book. For, I just follow him on YouTube. <laughs> I'll check his book out. Yeah, there's a generation gap showing up there. I'm reading all the books and most of the people that work at Wrangell, it's like, you know, I asked someone what book that they learned, uh, um, you know, JavaScript from. And they looked at me like I was like a book. Like you learn everything on the internet, dude. It's like, <laughs> and it's like, I guess that's pretty true, right? So. Yeah, yeah, I do a lot of Audible and then I'll follow like a couple different people's podcast that like I'll follow people who interview great people. And then that way that gives me my, and then I'll, I'll run off into a corner, like consume all of like this person's content then come back to like the Joe Rogan podcast, listen to him interview more great people and then go follow, follow down into another hole. And that's kind of the pattern I've noticed myself getting into. Yeah. So in, uh, you know, for whatever strange reason, like the last two years, um, it seems every book on leadership I read, has uh, some chapter on the Navy SEALs. Like it just, it, it almost has to be there. So um, I, I read, or, or Special Forces. So the, uh, you know, the Extreme Ownership, uh, great book. Um, I read all of the uh, uh, General uh, Stanley McChrystal books, Team of Teams, One Mission, which are fabulous from actually looking at um, modern digital organizations because uh, it's about how fast can you respond um, in a complex environment where things are shifting all the time. And it's a great uh, definition of, you know, what happens in lean startup and what happens in modern uh, development. And, um, and it's a team of teams model. And uh, it talks about how problems that emerge at a cross-functional level can only be solved at a cross-functional level. And uh, typical organizational hierarchies, everything escalates up and down, but you lose so much information and context that if you have three different uh, groups escalating up, everyone at the top tries to solve the problem and they invariably make it worse. So how do you solve those kind of organizational challenges? And uh, they do a really good job of articulating that um, in the uh, McChrystal's books. Oh, thanks. I actually saw... I think I saw it on my Audible, that Teams of Teams book cover, I think yesterday or the day before. And I was like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. Because uh, yeah, I talk a lot about like autonomous team scaling and structure and Team of Teams is like, that's the most perfect, succinct title ever, right? It's, it's a great book too, because most books that are written, they're usually written early on and uh, they're written to talk about something new. So they, they have that consulting 
for lack of a better word, sort of lack of, of depth. And they don't really get into the, the hard, hard human bits. And, and what I liked about Team of Teams is it goes into a lot of the hard human bits and there's a lot of um, just uh, exploration of all the dark corners where things fail. And they talk a lot about that. And one mission does a similar thing. So it's, uh, it, it's, they do as good a job as I've seen uh, from a, a lean agile perspective, an agile transformation, digital transformation, in illuminating the shadows of the dark corners where the friction comes and the failures come and, and what kind of investment and efforts required to overcome that. Speaking of this, I'm curious about like health, wellness. I recently started getting into that and I was looking at a couple different wearables. They've got rings, they've got straps. Have you ever experimented with any of the wearables? Yeah, I have. Uh, Apple Watch, pretty much, for the most part. I got really into that for a while. Um, I still use it. Uh, have uh, I find having some feedback mechanisms is helpful, so from uh, staying on top of things. And uh, it's pretty incredible. I didn't even realize how, how deep it went until I started uh, seeing what I could measure, and it turned out pretty much everything. So I got a little yourself? carried away. I did. Um, I did. That got me a little thinking about it too much. So I did for a while and, and that was interesting. The, uh, the ability for the trackers to be accurate is a little questionable. So after I did that for a while and uh, that was great, then I started just using on iOS. It actually traps, it tracks your sleep for you pretty much if you uh, turn on the, the bedtime thing. And it just notes how long you haven't uh, moved your phone for. And, and that's actually been uh, what I've been doing lately. So on a weekly basis, I make sure I hit a, a certain threshold because I did discover by sleep tracking that I actually slept. I, I was overestimating how much I slept by about 45 minutes a day. I just sort of assumed I was sleeping like, you know, seven, seven and a half hours a day. And when I actually started tracking and I looked at the data, I was clocking in at six and a half, six, you know, six and three quarters. So that's given me a little more discipline to pay attention. And uh, that's been actually very impactful from a health perspective. Yeah, I was using this sleep tracking app that was pretty good, but it listens to your movements, you know, when you're sleeping. But then I, in my, you know, experimentation as a scientist, right, I was thinking, you know, trying different things. And I tried the sound machine, you know, to sleep. And that actually negates the thing. So I fell back to the bedtime feature that you were talking about, which it's accurate. The other thing was more accurate, but I sleep better with the sound machine now. And, uh, and so it's just, it's like you said, you know, you kind of get into it a little bit, you play with it a little bit, you figure out if it's something you want to, uh, how, how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole. But, uh, yeah, I haven't gotten any of the straps. I haven't gotten the watch. I was looking at this other strap. I can't remember what it was called, but, uh, it was like 180 bucks. And then there was a ring called Aurora. I remember what the ring was called, but it was like a go strap or something. I don't know. But I was looking at a couple different ones thinking, you know, what would it be like if I had something strapped to my wrist? My wife has the Apple watch and I was just asking around seeing what other people thought of them. Yeah, it's, um, I find it interesting because I didn't wear a watch for years and then I, I bought the Apple watch because I, what really got me to buy it at first, I was interested in the, uh, in the voice feature. So by being able to have a sort of a voice, you know, thing strapped to your wrist, I was wondering how useful that would be from a, a user experience perspective. Uh, it turns out it's still for, you know, it's not the best for rapid voice recognition. So that gave me some insight into that. Um, and then I wanted to decouple from my phone. So I, I sort of thought it'd be interesting to just be able to leave my phone behind. 
um, and uh, and not always be carrying it around. And then once I started wearing the watch for a while, now I just feel weird when I don't want wear it. So um, so now I just wear it all the time because it's become a habit. And, so it's uh, stuck. You like the watch? Yeah, yeah, I love the watch. I feel weird when I'm not wearing it now. Yeah, my wife got the watch and it's stuck, and she she's been wearing it for a year now, and she really likes it too. Yeah. Um, I also did a, a few other things like, so from a, a measurement thing. So, um, if you wear it when you sleep, you, you, your best time to sort of measure your resting heart rate is just before you get out of bed. So you automatically get your resting heart rate. That's a strong predictor, uh, for mortality and, uh, general sort of, you know, cardio health. So that's a pretty good one. I bought a, uh, a blood pressure machine that syncs up with the phone. So now if I go into Apple health, I've got my cardio, I've got my meditation, I've got my resting heart rate, I've got my blood pressure, um, I've got my sleep. And so all of a sudden it, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty compelling. And I don't have to look at it all the time. Like even if say at the end of the month on Sunday mornings, I can just sort of flick through it and, and see how I'm doing because I'm not actively thinking about any of those things. It's just all being uh, aggregated. Have you gotten any actual like actionable insights like oh i if i don't eat you know three hours before bed i sleep better or have you gotten anything from the data not so much um i uh, i i didn't drink any uh, alcohol for 10 weeks uh, before christmas i took off uh, 10 weeks and my resting heart rate went down a little bit uh, that was uh, one measure and that was the only um, discernible sort of measure i got i didn't see any difference in my sleep patterns or or anything have you ever gotten a food sensitivity test? No. Okay, so get this. So my stepmom and my dad, they own this clinic called Peaks of Health. And I saw them, you know, start it. And then over the past like five years, it's growing like really big. I see it just keep growing really big and really fast. And so eventually I was like, what do you guys do there? <laughs> like, why is it growing so fast? Why is it doing so well? And they're like, well, we do personalized, individualized, like me health, like medicine. And it's not like insurance. It's like you just go and you pay cash. And uh, so I said, well, I'll check it out. And they had these like food sensitivity tests. And I spent like 600 bucks and got like 96 foods checked. Right. So they, they drew like a ton of blood and uh, got the, and I got the results back. And it, it was like I was basically I was like 50 percent allergic to my entire diet. And I, just so you know, like I wake up, I go for a run, I eat two eggs, no, no, no junk on them, two pieces of whole wheat, organic toast, and you know, like a protein bar. And then I'm just a very clean, organic type person, right? Because uh, I used to be 300 pounds, I used to be really big. So I got these habits from, from, from not wanting to do that. And so uh, I was like, well, this is unbelievable. What would happen if I if, I've, if I'm having these immune responses and these allergen responses that they can tell from the antibodies in my blood, like what would happen if I changed my diet? And so I did, and I felt like just enormous amounts better, significantly more energy, you know, within 48 hours of eliminating these items from my diet. What we found was like, there was one food, what was happening is like, there's one food uh, that was like a wheat uh, uh, reaction, a wheat sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And that created this, uh, thing called leaky gut. And so what would happen is I'd eat this whole grain wheat, right? Like really, really natural and everything. And my body would have a, a small reaction to it, although I couldn't like physically pick up on it, right? 
And then that would create this issue where things would leak from my gut into my bloodstream and then my body would start attacking those things as foreign bodies. So it basically takes your entire diet and turns it against you. Wow. Yeah. I've read a bit about that. It is so. very real. Like I'll tell yeah. you, there are handfuls of things, you know, there's all this health stuff all the time. Right. But this was like a very, very real thing. So they put me on an 18 month plan to seal up my gut. Uh, and I'll tell you what, like, man, just within 48 hours of you have to, you have to find the origin food that's causing the leaky gut problem, completely eliminate that. And then even though those other foods, you still have to completely cycle your diet again to completely different foods, wait 18 months. And then now it's fixed. You never go back to the food that caused the problem and then you can go back on your normal diet and this whole process I've gone through you know it's not like a one doctor visit thing it's like been this six month thing I've been going through but I will tell you this like it it completely changed my uh, available amounts of energy and my life my sleep quality and all of that far more impact than all of the small things I'd done in my fitness life up into this hmm. point so I've been recommending it to people now you know spend the couple hundred bucks get the food sensitivity test like get like 96 foods or a high number of foods and then just check because you know if, if i would have talked to my past self uh you know six months ago i'd be like dude i feel fine like i have there are days when i have more energy there are days when i have less energy because it's relative to you right yeah and so there would have been no way to really convince myself uh but i'll i don't know it's just something that i'm gonna figure out a better a better way to talk about it in the future. This is actually my first time talking about it with you today. I've never talked about this on the on the podcast before, but it's just made such a difference in my life that I'm encouraging people now to go get uh, food immune response and uh, allergy response test. That's interesting. Yeah, I've never uh, thought of getting that done. So I have uh, my my health regime is. Uh, doing intermittent fasting. So I'm a little trendy on that. So noon to 8 PM and uh, I take a bit of omega three vitamin D a little bit of magnesium and, and then I'm done. So I like the magnesium too. I take that before bed. It help. It helps me sleep. That uh, actually does seem to help a little bit. So uh, the, the magnesium. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about the, the company stuff. One of the things I am curious about is, you know, there's always different configurations of how your teams will interface with your customers. What, what does your company do? Like, how do they, do they go work at their offices? Do they like, what's your style? So we put together teams that work out of the, mostly out of the Wrangell office. Um, so we built our culture being working face to face with our teammates because of the sort of the agile, uh, lean agile principles that we're building the company around. And then uh, we use a continuous delivery model to partner with our clients. So we set up a, a, a CDCI pipeline. Uh, we integrate into our clients' infrastructure. And, uh, and then we work with their stakeholders, uh, ideally a product owner on the client side. And um, we put together elite sort of high-performing teams and we build out customer experiences and we deliver rapidly and uh, we work with the client to remove the blockers that get in the way. So, and, and we're so used to delivering fast and the continuous delivery uh, model, you can, it's, it's been an interesting experience. So as we partner with different clients, they traditionally have the siloed waterfall process. Even if they ostensibly have agile delivery on their technology teams, it's really incremental delivery 
uh, you know, from a technology perspective, but there's no agility across the rest of the organization. When you're trying to move faster and uh, we work in one week iterations and you're working cross-functionally and you're trying to ship all the time, you're pushing against the organizational boundaries. And uh, we've, what we've done over the years is we've just constantly tried to build out the capabilities to remove more and more of the blockers so that we can continue to deliver in a continuous delivery um, fast you know, manner. And we, we measure cycle time as whether we're being successful or not. So our cultural sort of norms are high quality, cross-functional, low cycle time where we're trying to you know, define and ship features in uh, under three days, and then solving all of the organizational sort of needs around that so we can do that with uh, any, any organization. I like that. Well, what, is, what are your uh, best customers look like? Usually there's a alignment. So they have um, a strong commitment to uh, agile transformation, but they're usually in earlier stages because that's a, almost a near impossible task in a large company. And digital transformation now is, is the, sort of the next wave. Um, we do a lot of work with uh, you know Fortune 500 companies, a lot of uh, global retailers, uh, financial services companies, banks, insurance companies. We also do a, a lot of work with startups as well. We try to maintain a, a balanced portfolio so we don't get stuck and uh, you know lose our our sort of lean agile roots and the cultural norms of high quality, sort of fast, uh, you know, innovative delivery. Um, so we, we've worked with, uh, because we started in the technology space, one of the unique things about us is uh, our clients have been pretty global from early on. So we have a large client in Japan, we have a large client in Europe. Uh, Canada is actually a very small percentage of our clients. Uh, the majority of our business has been in the United States over the last six years. And um, we're able to, to reach that market because of our focus and our core discipline. So we're well known in the JavaScript community. We're well known, uh, you know, for what we do, and uh, and we're able to reach into those different communities. When you work with the enterprises today, because that is part of your portfolio, what do you what do you notice that they're doing as far as like performance and prioritization? The, the, the shift that we're seeing now, and, and this has been, uh, we've worked with, I think, four of our clients for about four years now. And so we've seen their evolution over, over the time period and things that were not norms or accepted or, or even understood are now uh, quite well understood. So we've always taken a, a position of doing everything at the, the, the best um the best practices and, and really developing those capabilities. So we uh, very early on, we would put actual experienced scrum masters on projects. The vast majority of our, of our clients didn't think that was really that necessary because they already had project managers or they, uh, they put people on a course for a couple of days or they had somebody who knew how to sort of schedule standups in the calendar, but there was no understanding of the dynamics of cross-functional team creation nurturing, you know, coaching, doing retrospectives, continuous improvement, and uh, all those things that get a team working together as one and, and sort of creating more value. And uh, that shifted. So like as of, say, about uh, 12 months ago, yeah, and these are some cl clients that we've been working with, so I, I like to think that we've had a, uh, an influence, but these are large organizations. I can see that, you know, as I think digital transformation 
agile transformation with large companies, um, you know, everyone plans to do it in three years, but it takes like 15 because there are so many um, cultural and organizational challenges that take a while to become generally understood in the industry. And once they're generally understood in the industry, now the next time, like the third or fourth time you try to do a change management initiative within the organization, it actually takes because the common knowledge, the zeitgeist, if you, if you will, around how to run a digital team is uh, the, the common understanding is now closer to the, uh, the end goal. So you, know, you see people actually getting experienced um, scrum masters and they exist now too, which is another thing, right? It takes multiple turns to actually produce the talent and the leadership. Um, you see a product uh, focus, you see companies moving to persistent funding, uh, you know, with, uh, with scaled agile, the actual practices, which were wildly inconsistent two years ago are starting to become, you know, pretty good. And, um, and, uh, there's a lot more traction, you know, happening. So now I think we're getting to that next stage where it's, um, you know, it's going to be really interesting uh, on what companies do next because the cross-functional sort of end-to-end uh, -end innovation capabilities of companies is, is still, um, it's still a, a huge lift. It's still a, a big journey because companies are still optimized for functions. Do you have any projects that you're particularly excited about that you could talk about? I guess that's always challenging. Um, you know, I, I can't speak specifically for most of our clients, but um, yeah, I, I can say that the, the um, you know, we work with a, a large medical device company and uh, we've put, you know, we've done HIPAA compliant medical device software development in a purely agile fashion and got it through regulatory approval and in market. And, uh, and that was an incredible journey and an amazing commitment from the client and, a huge learning um, sort of experience and uh, you know, what it takes to be able to do something. And a good example, like if, if there's a strong enough commitment to achieving an outcome, you know, people are very uh, industrious. And uh, if, if there's enough motivation to stay the course and actually get something done, you, you get through that change. And, uh, and that, was, that was pretty profound. Um, we've seen a lot of our clients start to get pretty adept at doing uh, scaled agile, so safe uh, PI planning. And what's been really interesting for us is because we roll up with high functioning sort of agile cross-functional teams and we work in a continuous delivery model, um, we don't really find a lot of uh, difference in, in different scaled agile practices because you know, we have uh, our own sort of model and our own instincts and it's, it's really built into our culture. But what we would find is you roll in and everything is just the old practices being done in, in new sort of forms. And the teams would struggle a lot because there wasn't any appreciation for the quality of the um, requirements going into the team and, and creating a, a decision space for the team and the autonomy. Um, it was functional specs being chopped into user stories the uh, ability to remove problems or get um, service level agreements across different functions wasn't there. Common understanding was missing. And so the, the friction was, was there. There'd be these teams that were agile that just couldn't move things through the organization. And that's where a lot of our 
the respect came for our teams is because we just kept things moving. We're very sort of, uh, yeah, um, committed to shipping. It's sort of like you ship high quality things frequently, like and we just keep churning at it and, and sort of provide some of the, the energy for the change management. And then the organizations do change and, and they do evolve. And what I saw last year um, was there's been a massive uh, surge in the number of chief digital officers in, uh, in the industry as people realize that the next big sort of uh, wave is, is to be successful is that we have to have a unified um, digital teams. And it's not, you know, business and technology aren't separate things or the, the same thing. And uh, technology was something that was provided for a business that's vastly different than technology being the business. And uh, I'm excited at seeing the impact of chief digital officers in, in the industry, but also in the expanding roles of CTOs and, you know, them taking on that function as well because of the, uh, it's, it is the business. I mean, that's, that's the big difference. No, I've been seeing the rise of the chief digital officer too. And that's definitely the way, I mean, things are going more digital, right? They're not going less digital. Yeah. Did, did you see the uh, Elon Musk interview with Joe Rogan the other day? No, I, I'm always scared to watch uh, Elon <laughs> Musk at the moment. So There's no weed. He didn't smoke weed on this podcast, on this latest <laughs> <Okay>. one. But, <laughs> but no, he just talks about how we're already, one thing that's interesting is he talks about like how we're sort of already cyborgs. It's just the bandwidth is really low because we have to type things in, get information and consume it back out. And he yeah. says that the that's just going to collapse, right? Like it's going to just become closer and closer and closer until it's just, we have the neural links in our head and we can just get the results and communicate how we want. Uh, does that future, does that excite you, terrify you? What are your thoughts on that? I think there's, there's two, two phases. There's the, the initial phase where it terrifies me and, uh, and then it excites me. Um, and, and I can explain a little bit about that. It's, um, you know, when you start a company, you have immediate alignment because you're just there by yourself and you have a vision and you have a goal and um and everyone just respects the fact that you're you're not out of business yet and survival is a huge victory and the people who join your company they they agree with the the idea and, and you interview them all yourself and you build a, a really cohesive early culture and the world doesn't change that fast so you've got 15 20 people and um, you're all aligned and because um, everybody sort of self-selected in. And when a company gets bigger, that starts to drift because you have more people. And uh, the best description I saw of this is a company's culture has to shift from tribal to the customer um, at some point because you need something external to align a larger organization. And if you try to maintain that tribal instinct, it, it's really doesn't respect people's agency. It doesn't respect that people are different. It doesn't respect different ideas. But what's interesting from a leadership perspective that where everybody just agreed with you because they joined because they agreed with you, now you're shifting and your, your goal is um, cultivating alignment. And you know, you're putting together teams and practices and plans and measurements that uh, get everyone focused on the external goal and on the customer and on the strategy and alignment is the is the goal it's a a drift away from you know 
sort of the, uh, the initial shared idea. It's now shared goals. When I think about technology, sorry, this is a little bit of a long no, setup. keep going. Things fragment really, really quickly in a culture because everybody has great ideas and there's so much information out there. And it, you see it in our culture now, in North America particularly, the polarization of political views and, and thinking and practices. And, you know, being able to focus on a few things that are aligned with your goals is, is, is very profound from a human um, sort of health and mental wellness. And, you know, it's, it's about your identity. It's about your focus. It's about where you put your energy. If you're always trying to figure out everything all the time, um, you start to develop a lack of focus and um, you, you end up with anxiety uh, because you're just trying to find a, a, a common picture in a soup of ideas. And, and to me, that's what digital is. That's what, uh, that's what the news is now because it's, you know, the, the clickbaity aspect of it, the algorithms driving content. It's, it's not actually driving strong human outcomes. Um, when you think about a team and you think about a, a goal and you think about how you work, you know, I would fully support someone hiring a company that does waterfall project delivery um, because there is a need for that kind of work in certain types of industries with certain types of uh, human sort of risk factors and, and, and whatnot. Um, but Wrangle is not interested in that because that's not who we are, right? We, we are focused on a particular market segment. Uh, we provide lean agile solutions and a continuous delivery partnership model to create customer experience centric outcomes for companies that don't have those capabilities themselves. That doesn't mean that's the only way of doing things, but it allows everybody to focus on that. And that means we get to keep our sanity. We get to be innovative. We get to be creative. We get to create real value. We, we get to help our clients. Um, and, uh, and we know where we stand. Um, as soon as you have technology guiding you, um, you just don't have a, an environment that is sane, really. So taking that a little further, so yeah, so we improve the bandwidth from our, our digital. And, um, you know, ultimately, what I think we need is something that understands, you know, more of the human spirit and the human mind and uh, the importance of, of how we do storytelling. Um, and how we think about things. And we need to curate our experiences. And, you know, we've traditionally curated our experiences through alt, art and culture. And uh, I found, like, in a, in a very interesting way, I've become much more passionate about things, maybe because I'm getting older, I don't know, but things that are human, uh, that have art, that have, you know, the human spirit, I find that helps because that allows me to orient on on purpose and orient on things outside. Otherwise, we just start, you know, re reacting to everything. So I think it's going to be terrible at first. And uh, we need to find and I think we're getting better like the, you know, people have recognized the issues with social media and whatnot. Um, but there's probably going to be this uh, period where you almost want to stay somewhat disconnected until it's good enough to be connected again. Because it's it's going to be not very human and not very effective until the technology is good enough that we can create the technology to support us in a more human way. So I could see AI becoming effective in, you know, not in sort of uh, 
brainwashing us, but curating our experiences so we can you know live in a in a focused way as opposed to a uh, a manipulated uh, sort of random way. Yeah, well, I mean, I brainwash myself, right? Like what I choose to curate in my environment is performing that outcome of brainwashing, right? If I surround myself with you know, leadership books or people who are motivated and people who are changing the world, that has a direct impact on my thoughts and my behaviors and my actions yeah. and my future. Yeah. And I guess what I, I worry about is um, we lose that, right? Uh, that control because we're now getting so much information that's coming, you know, at us and that's being curated for us and we're not, we're not in control. And that's where the, that little laser beam of focus comes in. And so I'm always trying to figure out, like, if I just did one thing today that would move me forward towards one of my goals, like, what would that be? I also started waking up in the morning and, like, making goals for the year, but only about three. And then I, and they're kind of big. By the way, getting good at goal making is really hard. I mean, I've been working at this for years, and I've tried all these different styles and methodologies and different things, and I've, I've kind of figured out what works for me. But I, I put together these like macro goals, like I want to improve my health. And then I just ask myself, like, what's one thing today that I'm going to do to move that goal forward? And then I'm only ever working with like three goals. Like I want, you know, my business to be uh, profitable to a certain dollar amount. Okay, that's my goal for 2020. I just now, now I have freedom. Like, what am I going, what projects am I going to execute against? Or what can I do today to just put me in a better position, reduce my probability of failure against achieving it? And I found that that works because I'm a, I'm a pretty creative person. And so that gives me these, these cement pillars to orbit around, to anchor myself on. So I know I'm moving myself forward on a, on a life path, but at the same time I get creativity to how am I going to chip away at that every day? Yeah, I like that. Um, you know, similar experience. It's uh, yeah, ultimately it's about what works for each individual and the way that your mind is wired. So uh, my wife, um, she looks at my sort of enthusiasm for uh, planning tools and task management and, and things. And she just sort of looks at me like I'm crazy because she just writes down a simple list of what she needs to do. She does it and then she, she continues. But I tend to uh, have um, a lot of diverse interests and I get distracted fairly easily and I don't have the same attention span that she has. So um you know, so I, I try to do these lists, but these lists tend to get out of control. And then I, I sort of declare list bankruptcy and I'll start again. And that was what happened, you know, for a, a number of years. So, um, you know, I found out that, uh, you know, going with less is very helpful. And I had to really, you know, I, I love information and, and uh, I love learning, but I got very, very disciplined at um, just, you know, not collecting things and being very comfortable at just deleting things and and reducing the clutter and uh, so I have a discipline now where I have less clutter mental planning sort of initiatives and and get down to a few things that are, are really the key things that I need to focus on and uh, don't let myself get distracted by anchoring on that um, I started doing 70 day plans uh, so uh, where I focus on a few things for 70 days. And I pick 70 days based upon the, you know, 60 days, 66 days for a habit. And uh, that's where I didn't drink, uh, you know, between 
first uh, it was 70 days it was 10 weeks and i just sort of loaded that up and uh figured i'd run with that and then at the end of the 70 days uh see what i've learned and and uh you know certain things become habit and then i roll into the next so that's how i started meditating again last summer and i've done it continuously now since then uh, i took up cycling because i i had a foot injury i couldn't run for a while so i took up cycling and you know i focused on that and that became sort of ingrained in in my habits so a lot of focus also on pushing things into the habit space so I don't actually have to think about it and exercise my uh, my willpower. Isn't that amazing how that works, especially as like I'm getting older, I realize I can get things programmed. I look at myself as a computer and I'm like, I can program things into me and then they get done without me thinking about them. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's 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 pretty fascinating. And it's it's, uh, you know, and things that were tiring aren't tiring anymore because they're just instinctive. And if it's instinctive, it's just a much different impact on our, our brain and our willpower. Like it, it becomes free from a willpower perspective, which is a, is a huge, huge win. Uh, and when you think of all the things that we have to do in life and all the things we have to focus on, you know, if something can become sort of automatic, then uh, it frees up our capacity to tackle other higher value things. It's like programming, like the work is create writing the program. And once it's written, it operates. <laughs> It is. And it's actually one of the things I'm really excited about. So from an organizational perspective, you know, the ability to focus and, you know, what it's talking about, but from a personal perspective, there's a lot of similar concepts. And uh, I read um, Thinking Fast and Slow last oh, year yeah. by Daniel Kahneman. And I, I've just been seeing the whole world through the system one, system two filter since. And it's been uh, pretty fascinating. And uh, the concept of biases and uh, recency bias, availability bias, he did a, a great uh, podcast with Tyler, Tyler Cohen on uh, noise, and he actually states in it that he thinks noise is, is a more profound challenge for humans than bias. And uh, most of, of uh, Thinking Fast and Slow is about cognitive bias. So he has another book that'll be coming out sometime this year, I think, on, uh, on noise. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but that concept of uh, programming ourselves is actually really, uh, I think, resonates well when you read that book. Uh, because, you know, once things become available, um, we just, you know, they're the things that shape our, our worldview. So by making something else a little stronger uh, in our minds or hacking our minds, so to speak, then we can, uh, or using other framing tools, we can perceive and, and see things differently. So it speaks to a, a healthier sort of mind and a, uh, you know, a, a self-understanding that gives us a, a better, um, you know, maybe more tolerance and, and better instincts around different point of views. How, how would I find that podcast you mentioned? Um, it's, uh, it's on noise. So Daniel Kahneman, noise and uh, Tyler Cohen, C-O-W-E-N. Awesome. I'm going to listen to that because that's, that's a good way for me to describe the difference between before having my diet the way it was and after is it was a profound experience where the best way to describe it was things just quieted down. It was like a clarity or just like a noise, like a signal versus noise. It's like somebody just turned the white noise down. It's like somebody's like, yeah. here's, I'm, here's a knob. I'm just going to turn the white noise down. And I was like, well, biologically with my limited medical understanding, if your body is like fighting itself, right. <laughs> and that's creating a lot of, that's like a sub root. It's like a sub process running that's taking up the memory. And if you just kill that thing, right? It frees up the memory and you have more working memory. You have more clarity. You can, you can enjoy life more. And I, I haven't even like stacked more things on my to-do list. What I've, what, 
for me, it's just been like enjoying my overall experience. Like I'm just going through, you know, this past week with just more memory, like just a better, clearer feeling while I do the things that I already know drive revenue and create results. That's great. Yeah. My instinct was to pile a bunch of new stuff on. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no, I get so unhappy when I do that, you know? So I started a new habit earlier this week and uh, it's very interesting because you just, you lose certain uh, momentum or you you get tired of something. So I used to come home at night and I'd watch a couple of Ted talks. That's what I would do. So I wouldn't watch a TV show. I'd watch a couple of Ted talks. Then I I stopped. And so I thought, Oh, I'm going to go make lunch because I'm at home like everyone else. So what I do is I fire up a Ted talk because you can listen to a lot of them. And then, um, you know, what I do is I just sort of cook and listen. And then I, uh, I go and, uh, you know, watch the rest of it while I eat. They're about 18 minutes. So I'm done and I've got some sort of insight. And, and what I found, you know, I was talking about this a little earlier, is it just starts surfacing my creativity because it links to my other experiences and it creates a, an external sort of focus. You know, it gets me out of my head out of just thinking about the business, thinking about Wrangle, you know, and, uh, and it opens up my creativity and, and, uh, you know, my, my passion for things. So, you know, the one I was uh, listening to today was an amazing talk about storytelling and, uh, someone who got hired to run storytelling workshops for medical students and doctors. And, uh, what they found was that it had a tremendous impact on mental wellness because it would get people to sort of, share with other people and and sort of connect with other people, understand other people had similar challenges, but also more have people remember, you know, the purpose behind what they're doing and the value and and getting that reinforcement. And uh, so it was, it was interesting. It was, it was a a fascinating talk. And then there was one right after I ended up watching too, and it was on, uh, on mental wellness and the teaching. And so, you know, with COVID we think, you know, we hear a lot about frontline workers and, and the impact on them doctors have that all the time and it's actually pretty stunning when you hear about the the impact on doctors their mental sort of wellness and just a regular sort of environment and then teachers as well who are continuously you know responsible for educating these other humans and those humans come in with all their other sort of challenges in life and uh and and the impact there so um just a really inspiring but also uh you know humanizing a couple of talks that's a good point you just brought up. Uh, like I'd say there's the, the change or the evolution in the business world today is like, you know, we have underperforming people who normally perform pretty well. It's common knowledge, or at least it's penetrating the, the common knowledge that we would, you know, talk to them like a human and figure out like what's going on, you know, like as part of our diagnosis process, you, you know, just be real with them. And, that just drew a parallel to like, what do, what do teachers do when they have a, you know, an eighth or a 12th grade student or maybe a college kid? Like, are they uh, getting involved on that level? I'm curious now. It, uh, it really depends on the teacher. And, and even if they're not, they're still like the one, the one uh, talk I saw today was you just still absorb it. Right. So, yeah. um, and you absorb it and you, you just, you just, you can't not. Right. And, um, so it was, uh, it was pretty touching on, uh, you know, that, uh, just, you know, and I never really thought about it from, you know, just, you know, a teacher that is really seeing that year after year after year, all those stories 
all those people, all those, um, you know, victories and all those challenges and, uh, you know, the, the toll and the impact is, uh, is, and how do they maintain their sort of mental wellness and, and that kind of an environment and doctors as well. So. This is great. What's like the big call to action that, that your customers respond to or how they find you? So um, there's two different areas right now. So I talked about uh, you know, our, our start and putting together these uh, you know, customer experience application teams. Um, that's often how they find us because they're trying to build something and they, they find us and uh, they like how we talk about it and they reach out and, and we work with them or we meet them at a show. Um, I talked a lot about you know, linking the organization and, and creating the ability to you know, build and ship customer experiences without getting stuck in the organizational friction. And so we've been doing a lot of work in design systems lately. And uh, design systems are an integrated sort of strategy, design, and development um, platform where you capture as much of the strategy, the design, the brand, and you create a single source of truth so that your front-end customer experience teams can actually problem solve. And, uh, you know, I think the need to get customer centric and companies just can't do that. That's where we're really looking to uh, partner with our, our clients. You want to get customer centric, you need to find a way to create front end customer centric teams that have the ability to problem solve. And uh, that is the biggest challenge in organizations because there's so many walls that go from budgeting and strategy and design and governance by the time there's a team building something almost all of their ability to make a decision has been removed and uh, they don't even know why certain things exist so over planning paralyzes uh, teams um, you need to create teams that have a goal and uh, they need to be able to chase that goal but that's hard in a in an enterprise and, and so Using design systems and lean agile practices and front end teams and continuous delivery, uh, we're partnering with our, our clients to fix that. Excellent. So we'll put links in the in the show notes and the re- website is just wrangle.io. Yep. Excellent. Is there anything else that, that we need to cover we didn't get off today? Yeah, I actually had one prepared answer. Yeah. So. Um, so if I could go back in time, you know, what would I tell a younger version of myself? So, you know, when you're younger, it's all about sort of figuring it out. And, and, and especially if you're coming at it from a technology perspective, it's about, it's, it's a, it's an invention thing. And, uh, you know, and everybody sort of knows this, if you've been involved with any kind of, of startups and it's like, you know, no, it's not an invention thing. It's a team thing. And uh, if I were to give myself advice, uh, a younger version of myself, seize the opportunities to develop leadership skills earlier, in addition to your sort of, you know, technology and consulting skills, because, um, you know, ultimately, it's not just about an idea, it's not just about an invention, it's not about problem solving, it's, it's about working with other people and, um, and executing on something. And I think almost any company can be successful if they can find better ways to execute and deliver more value. And almost any startup can succeed, you know, if they can, you know, survive long enough to find the market that probably exists for their idea. Um, 
and that's leadership, that's team building, that's, um, and that's something that I was pretty oblivious to until uh, probably, I'm not even gonna embarrass myself by saying when, but uh, I'll say in my 30s, I started getting a little more sort of aware because uh, up to that, I was just too busy learning about, about the work I did. And uh, I never spent enough time learning about people. And uh, you know, that's, that's the advice I'd give my younger self. Amazing. Well, you're killing it today, my friend. Beautiful yeah. company, growing, building cool products. I'm, I'm really happy to know you and get to spend some time with you. Yeah, I really enjoyed the talk as well. It was uh, inspiring for me. I was good to hear your story. And, and I'm going to see uh, about getting myself tested for uh, food sensitivities. I would so. definitely do that. I, I think any human should do that. Right. All right. Awesome. Talk soon. Talk soon. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks. Bye. Bye.